Welcome, you are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. Jesus says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or... Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Christianity is expensive. What will it cost you? And the answer is everything. And if you try to do anything other than everything, you're like the guy who starts to build a tower and can't finish it. Waste of time, waste of resources. It's very all or nothing. So we're really today in Ezra chapter 9. And so let me... Ezra 9 and 10 get get tough. The... This is a tough sermon today. It may step on toes. There's some of you that may not like like where we're going with this. The hard question. Is it evil to love your family more than you love God? Let's use that harsh language. But I think, harsh language though it is, I think we need to ask that question. And I think that Ezra gives us an answer. The most important lesson that I'm going to say, my mom—it's not that my dad didn't teach me, but my my father was my father was something of a workaholic for a lot of his life. Mom did mom raised us, um, and and uh, I had a great mom. At at so many, she, I mean, she did so many things for the church. She was a pillar of the church, piano player, Sunday school teacher, quilting circle, all that kind of thing. Um, did a good job taking us to all of the events in our, you know, in our lives, band and all of, all of that, and liked science fiction, Doctor Who and Star Trek. So obviously a great mom. Um, but the best thing was that she had her priorities perfect and let us know that God, following God through his son Jesus was the only thing that mattered. That you could, I appreciated that my parents, I, 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 I think you guys know, I've, I, did, I did well in school um, and did well on college entrance exams and, and uh, could, could have gone anywhere I, I wanted. I'm, I'm God, my parents t- gave, taught me good study techniques and I appreciate that and, and academics came easy to me. But I, I, I cannot forget that my parents always let me know, you know, acing the SATs and SATs don't matter if you're not right with Christ. Um, uh, if if you're not, you know, good grades don't matter. Are you a good person? 
Are you, are you biblical? Those, those things don't, it don't matter in the long People care whether or not. They don't. And, and I appreciated that in particular. I said, your church isn't going to care what your scores on those tests were. They're going to care, do you know the Bible? Do you follow the Bible? Are you nice to people? Are you good to people? Are you honest with them? These are the things that matter in life. Are we Christ-like? Are we following God? And what does that look like? And Christians in the area of family, Christians can get their priorities out of whack. This is a tough passage, but I think it gets to the heart of what my parents, what my mom uh, always, always taught me, that God is first. Ezra chapter, Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, this is Ezra speaking, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. But when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. And then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. And then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God. And I prayed, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief to our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He's shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia, He's granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he's given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, O our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet, our God, you've punished us less than our sins have deserved. And have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? 
O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Ezra, the, the word is appalled. Ezra is appalled by sin. I think we deserve to ask the question, are we? Is that our reaction to sin? I, did Ezra overreact? Pulling out his hair, tearing his clothes, sitting for a whole day in, in sorrow. Is that, is that a little bit of overreacting for, for people marrying outside of Israel? I mean, what's, what's the big deal? Moses had an Egyptian wife named Zipporah. Boaz married Ruth. She was a Moabite. David had a few foreign wives. Solomon had 700 of them. And we start to look at David, and then we start to look at Solomon. And we see the problem with Solomon. It wasn't just in the numbers. But it was that all these foreign wives would bring their foreign gods with them, which was bad enough that there was pagan worship going on in God's holy city of Jerusalem. And Solomon let them build altars and temples to their gods, which is worse. And then Solomon allowed them to lead his heart away from God. And that's unacceptable. 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6. Just so we stay in the New Testament as well and think, well, this is just Old Testament stuff. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul tells us, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. There's a thing they call missionary dating, which is when a Christian dates a non-Christian and says, I'll just, you know, when they date me, they'll see my priorities and they will realize how much I love God and how real God is and they will, they, they will turn. It happens but it's always the exception. Everybody thinks they'll be the exception to the rule. The truth is that biblically, people are like Solomon. And the Christian is led to be increasingly non-Christian. I've seen it so many times. Is Israel, Ezra, was a, Ezra feels Israel, this is destroying Israel. Um, the word that he uses is, is a word that means destruction, isolation, despair. He's appalled. What they faced was not like destruction, like, oh, a tornado came through town, um, or we lost our power. What he's talking about is utter extermination, like, like when Hurricane Katrina like, literally wiped away cities. Um, it, this is closer to, 
I mean, quite frankly, the comparison, you know, what, what Ezra fears is this is the end of Israel. Uh, make a comparison. Isn't that what Hitler's goal was, was to just get rid of the Jews entirely? Can't, can't we do genocide? Can't, and, and Ezra's comparison is this is the equivalent of, a, of genocide, that the, that the people of, of Judah are, are entering into. The, let me say, the issue isn't foreign marriage. And I want to be clear on this one. Um, Ruth was a great person. Ruth, Ruth is, a, is, a, is a heroine of the Bible. Um, she leaves her people to go to Israel to be a part of Israel and is the ancestor of King David. And she gave that up. Mo- Moses' wife, Zipporah, gave up being Egyptian. Um, I, I, I think you guys know this by and large. Um, uh, my parents, my dad and mom are Illinois people. Um, I still don't hold that against them, but I don't like Illinois. Um, my sister Cherish and I were born in Scotland, and then my parents went on a kick where they started collecting kids from other countries like crazy. Uh, I guess they decided two kids from Scotland wasn't enough, and so Jan's from Cambodia, and Michael is from India, and then there's An and Hung and Voot and Ta, who were all from the East and I'm not going to try to get their countries correct that were foster kids in our home. It was not a very white family I grew up in. Um, and, and, that, and that was wonderful. And, and, and I know that we live in, in, a, in a world with some, some racial tension, but we as Christians, that shouldn't even exist because we believe not only in Adam and Eve, but we believe in Noah and that everybody got off the ark at the same time. And so... I, skin, skin tone doesn't matter. Skin color doesn't matter any more than hair color or eye color. Um, you can make all the blonde jokes or redhead jokes you want, but, I mean, we, they're jokes. They don't, they don't matter. We have no more control over our hair color than our, than our skin color, and we're all made in God's image. The Bible is not against interracial marriage. It doesn't care because there's just one race. There's the human race. The, what the Bible is resoundingly against Old and New Testament is the people of God marrying the people who don't follow God. Because it rips apart families, kids are torn, having to choose between. A lot of times the godly spouse is pulled away. Um, Israel was meant to be... I mean, the, the constant thing that Ezra keeps saying is these foreign nations with their detestable practices. That's the thing he keeps emphasizing. The issue wasn't Zipporah was an Egyptian or Ruth was a Moabite. The issue, they, they gave up their culture. The issue was the culture and specifically a godly culture of faith. And Ezra was appalled that that was something that the people of Judah were willing to throw away. Um. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I, the goal isn't to step on anybody's toes, but if it steps on your toes, so be it. I'm amazed through the years the number of people I have known who were against interracial marriage. My kid better not marry somebody who's black or from another culture. But they didn't care whether or not their kid married a Christian or a non-Christian. And that just astounds me that our priorities could be 
so shallow as to be skin deep that there are people that are more worried about the color of someone's skin than whether or not they're following Christ. What horrific, what a horrific set of priorities to, to be. And then we wonder why the church, three out of four kids that are raised in the church walk away from the church because we're telling our kids that doesn't really matter whether you follow God. If, if, it, if the Bible is true, if the words of, of Ezra and Paul are true, then sin matters and following God matters and a relationship with God through his son Jesus matters. And if mom and dad don't push that, the kids aren't going to hear it. The issue here was that the remnant was losing its, I'm going to say cultural identity, but I don't mean culture like people in Scotland wear kilts and people in Papua New Guinea wear grass skirts. And I, don't, I don't mean culture like what we wear or jewelry. I mean the Christian, in this case, the biblical, Judaic, godly culture that God had given the people of Israel, follow the Ten Commandments, don't eat pork, don't, you know, all, all these rules that he gave them. They were in danger of losing that to Babylon, who'd captured them for seven years. In fact, here's how, here's how, here's how serious that was. Those people, have you, have you guys ever seen Hebrew script? What, you know, have you ever seen what, what the Hebrew people writing in Hebrew looks like? And if you think that you have, you still probably haven't. Because what we call Hebrew isn't Hebrew. It's Aramaic, letters. They had gone off to Babylon and they had lost their alphabet. They started using Aramaic letters. They were still using the Hebrew words, but nobody around them was using those letters, those Hebrew letters. And while they were in Babylon, their alphabet got assimilated, and they started using the Aramaic alphabet. Now, you know where this is going. The next step is once you, after you lose your alphabet, then you start to lose your language. And by the time of Ezra, they're using a lot of Aramaic. They're not using as much Hebrew anymore. And so some of the books of the Bible, Daniel, Ezra, have a lot of Aramaic snuck into them. Entire chapters are not written in Hebrew because they were not only losing their alphabet, now they're losing their language. Language is a lot of culture. But let me also say that at the end of the day, I don't, language doesn't matter nearly as much as following God, right? I mean, that's the only thing that matters. And so Ezra saw we're losing our identity bit by bit, but we're getting ready to throw it away if we're not careful. The people are marrying people who don't care about God. The, the people of Judah are marrying people that do not follow God, and, and they're going to quit following God themselves. I don't think Ezra overreacted. I think, the pro- I, I, I think there's a problem, and the problem is nobody else was reacting yet, that nobody else cared, that they were in the danger of the, the very thing. Again, they got carted off into captivity. The Israelites had been interspersed among the neighborhoods of, of Babylon, then Persia. The goal was to wipe out their identity. Seventy years later, a remnant, because most of the people had been culturally subsumed, but there were a few people that held on to that identity and said, no, 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 we're Jewish. We're hanging on to this. We can't wait to go back to our homeland. Seventy years of hanging on to that, they go back to their homeland, and then they give it up. And Ezra is rightfully appalled. Israel had been reestablished by God. They were in danger of losing even that. And Ezra recognized that so many people were willing to sacrifice that. Do we take sin for granted? Are we just like, hey, we're, we're, we're in this world? Kind of, there's a lot of similarities. We are in a non-Christian world 
We are surrounded. We are interspersed. Did we just kind of think whatever? It's just the world that we live in. It's just sin. Get with the times. Or are we serious about sin? Does it appall us? And so then we ask this, the follow-up question. If we're, are we appalled by sin? Do we see, do we admit that we have a need to move past it? To seek God's forgiveness? Ezra prayed to God. It's so amazing how often we, we save that for the last, we ignore it. We treat, we, we're so bad about treating God like he's human. The number of people, that, I never understand why people who never go to church in their life want to get married in a church. I, I, I don't get it. If it's not your thing, why is it your thing for a marriage? You, you're not going to trick God into like blessing your marriage because you came into the church that one day and he's, he's like, oh, I'm bound to, I'm bound to you know, give you guys, shower you guys with blessings because you paid attention to me for one hour in a day. But there are people that kind of, there are people that do that. I went to church on Sunday. I bowed my head and didn't look at my iPhone that much while the preacher was praying. And 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 doesn't matter what I'm up to on Friday night. God doesn't pay attention to my Friday nights. He's just paying attention to me on Sunday morning between 9 and noon. We treat God like he's human. So many people think that God sees church on Sunday and not Friday evenings, but but talk is cheap. We come to church and we talk about God, but but talk doesn't matter. Action. If you have words and you have actions, the actions show your character, not your words. The very first thing we have to do is open discussions with God when we sin. And honestly, in context, what we're talking about here in Ezra is bad priorities. Does God love families? Yes. Absolutely God loves families. Can't emphasize this enough. But a family apart from God is lost. The family is not God's means of salvation. We can work with him. We should if we are Christian parents or spouses or kids even if necessary. Families can, can be, but, they're, but they're, not, they're not the church. They're not God's means of, of, of saving people. They're a gift. But they're not the source of salvation. The problem with the people in losing their identity, the reason that the Israelites were doing this was these surrounding people that had been there for the past 70 years, the Babylonians had settled in, had established themselves. They had money, they had power, they had strength. Economically, socially, this would have lifted the remnant up. But that's a problem because they're not looking to God to lift them up. They're looking for the people around them. A... a, uh, a non-religious, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? A uh, secular. They're looking for a secular means to be lifted up instead of turning to God. Economics, money, society was, more, was becoming more important to them than following God. It seems like they disbelieved that God would be the one to sustain them and save them. And so we ask ourselves that question, do we believe that Christ is Lord? Um, we have to learn how to deal with sin in our lives. And Ezra gives us the example. We admit our sin. We feel guilty. We should feel guilty. Too often, we flee from guilt. If something makes us feel bad, we try to run away. We try to ignore it. I must be doing something wrong because I feel guilty. Guilt is a gift from God. It can remind us, if you feel guilty about doing something, stop doing it. 
Don't try to kill the guilty feeling. Stop doing what makes you feel guilty. Guilt is not a terrible thing. When you quit feeling guilty, there's a problem. Guilt is a tool. Sometimes it's kind of one of the last tools. After God tells us don't do this and warns us. and Sometimes after we do it, it's kind of the reminder don't do it again. It's a tool that the Holy Spirit uses to turn us around and bring us at home. But let me also add to this that guilt is not enough. I know some people that love feeling guilty. It's almost a catharsis. It, it fools them in to this false sense of, oh, if I feel guilty for what I did, then I'm okay and God forgives me. Not if you don't change your behavior. At that point, it's a false sense of security. It's, it's can I use the words, kind of a masochistic tendency of I'm going to make myself feel bad so that now I feel good. But without repentance, without changing our behavior, guilt is incomplete. God doesn't want you to feel guilty. He wants you to change. We might be willing to confess our sins. We might even be willing to stop sinning. But until we repent and turn around and go the other direction and, and, and make amends, that's what we're going to get into next week in, in chapter 10. This, this leaves us hanging, doesn't it, at the end of chapter 9. There's a problem, in, and, and Ezra has, has confessed the sins of the people, but that doesn't mean that the problem has gone away. How do, when we do something that's sinful... Do we repent? Do we make amends? That's the hard part. It's easy to confess our sins to God, but it's hard to make amends and now to fix what we did wrong. Like if you steal something, feeling guilty about it doesn't matter. Saying you'll never do it again still doesn't matter as much as giving back what was stolen, right? Or what's the point? Now we apply that to all of our other sins. Um, Too many people do not want to confess their sin and make amends. You know, they like apologizing to God in the quiet quiet of their room, but repentance? Turning around and doing the opposite? Eh. We need to quit feeling sorry for sin and actually talk with God about what repentance looks like. And then, and then we can ask the question that Ezra, that Ezra, what drives Ezra, are we actually approved by God? Does God approve of what we're doing? Are we, are, are, has he, we talk about the blessings of God. I don't believe that God just showers his blessings on all of planet earth equally. Those who walk with God, who walk in his ways, and not tells God, hey God, I'm going to do this for you and you don't have a say in the matter. But, but we look to God's word and we say, what does God want from me? And when we do what God wants and we have his approval, that's what we're after. Ezra's desire was to be a man of God and, and for Israel to be a people of God. And that's our goal too, I, I hope. It has to be about pleasing God first. So then we're going to get back to the tough question. How far does that go? Or on the other end, how little will we do? So we open with Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 33. The Building the tower, count the cost going to war, count, count the armies. But I want to back up just a few verses. Let the cont- those verses follow some harsher words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 14, verse 25, this is how he started that passage. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning, them, turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, 
his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Well, that's some harsh language. Hate mom and dad. Hate my family. How how could a loving God tell me this? All right, so let's back up into the Old Testament, because I actually think that there's some verses that may help. Malachi, last book of the Bible. Malachi's a gem. It has some powerful passages. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. In Oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. And I've turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, those are the descendants of Esau. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Doesn't God love everybody? So, so if God loves everybody, why did he hate Esau and continue to punish the descendants of Esau, Edom? So, okay, let's go back to the story. story. Um, Abraham has Isaac, Jacob has, Isaac has Jacob and Esau, twins. Esau came out first. Esau was the firstborn. And therefore stood to inherit the promise that God made amazing promises to Abraham. Your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I will bless the whole world through you. That's Jesus. Abraham is going to be the ancestor of the Savior of the world. An amazing promise. Isaac, inheritor of that promise. Primogeniture should go to Esau. Esau didn't care. There was a point where Jacob swindles him out of his inheritance for a cup of tomato soup. You know, I'll trade you your inheritance, which includes God's amazing promises to Abraham. I will trade that for, you're th- your, your hungry? Here, have some soup. How insulted was God that he makes these amazing promises to Abraham? World-changing, the greatest promises ever to any single human being. The most amazing promise ever given to a human being. And it's Esau's inheritance, and Esau says, I would rather have that cup of soup. How insulted was God? And so God says, fine, I will bless Jacob. Jacob wanted it. Jacob gets the blessing. Now, let's go forward. Jacob spends 20 years trying to, try, trying to work for his wife, Rachel, her, um, uh, the chance to marry her, to get flocks from his father-in-law, Laban, 20 years in labor, not his own man, um, toiling away for a father-in-law who keeps changing his wages and changing the deal. And 20 years is a long time to try to, you know, as an adult, try to get married and get out on your own. Meanwhile, Esau, who Malachi says God hated, kids, flocks, herds, territory, cities, if that's God's hatred, Esau did pretty well, right? Ah, but Esau wasn't right with God. 
and Jacob was. Jacob toiling away with nothing to his name is right with God. Renamed Israel, which means wrestles with God. Jacob is the one who was blessed. The world would not look at Jacob and say he was blessed. Esau is the one that God hated. We'll get to that. But the world would look at Esau and say, that's not being hated. That's, that's a great life. That's what the covenant relationship with God looks like. It doesn't always look like blessings the way the world defines blessings. The covenant relationship with God is that God loves us, and no matter how, things, how bad things get, we're still right with God. God doesn't want a casual, throwaway relationship with you. That won't save you. You may have lands and herds and big families and no struggles, but if you have no God, that's all worthless. Esau put himself, Esau hated God. I mean, just bluntly put, throwing away his inheritance, he hated God. And so God reverses the language in Malachi and says, fine, then I hate Esau. No, God, God wants the people of Edom to come to follow him. God wants all men to follow him. In that sense, God loves everybody. But not everybody's going to be blessed by God because most people reject him. And if you reject God, you might as well be hated because if you throw God away, there's nothing left. God wants a relationship, a covenant relationship with us, like he had with Jacob, renamed Israel, even though Jacob, Jacob Israel had a really hard life. Northern, remember that civil war, northern Israel didn't have a relationship with God. That's the point. I mean, they, they were terrible to God. They, 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 they didn't follow him. They, they followed anybody but God. The northern nation of Israel is just godless. In fact, the word that's used to describe them is faithless. And we know what that less means. There's, there was no faith. There was none. They were faithless. There was no faith, no relationship with God. Judah, back and forth. The word to describe Judah is unfaithful, which is different than faithless. Faithless is no faith. Unfaithful means sometimes they followed God, sometimes they cheated on him, like an unfaithful wife which isn't good, and that's why they were carted off into captivity in Babylon. But I guess unfaithful is better than faithless. There's something to work with, and so God lets them go back home. And that's where Ezra is. We've been unfaithful. Why are we doing it again? Does God want you to hate your family? No. But Jason, we just read in Luke, yeah, so, so here's what it means. If you ever get to a point where you choose between God and family... You choose God every time. Um, God must be your top priority. This will sometimes divide families. I hope it doesn't. I hope it never happens to you. But I've seen families divided by a relationship with God. And we always choose to follow God. First, First and foremost and only, that's how important this is. When you love your family more than you love God, you will lose your direction. Our direction is focused on heaven. And... Let me say that even for Christians, sometimes family can be a distraction. We've, I've known too many people that wanted to be missionaries, too many young college kids that wanted to be missionaries, and mom and dad said, I don't want to see my grandkids grow up overseas and, and, and talk them out of it. That's when family becomes a hurdle, not a blessing. The church has lost too many kids to non-Christian marriages through the years. Parents, do your kids the greatest thing that God, the greatest task God has given you. Show them that God alone 
holds their salvation. God, through Christ Jesus, is the source of salvation and the only source. Show them that. Tell them that. Don't, don't assume they know. Don't assume at church they've heard it sufficiently, in Sunday school with, and, and, and in church. Never take that for granted. Have that conversation because, quite frankly, they may assume if you don't talk about it that it doesn't apply to you. You have to talk about it. It doesn't have to be a stressful conversation. Just remind them that God is your top priority and that you want him to be their top priority. If you don't tell them, they won't know. Remind them they need their own relationship with him. They can't have your relationship with him. Nobody, nobody, nobody inherits salvation from their parents. Everybody needs their own relationship with God through Christ Jesus.